You're listening to a special bonus episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. Hello and welcome to Biceps After Babies Radio, a podcast for ladies who know that fitness is about so much more than pounds lost or PRs. It's about feeling confident in your skin and empowered in your life. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, a registered nurse, personal trainer, wife, and mom of four. Each week, my guests and I will excite and motivate you to take action in your own personal fitness as we talk about nutrition, exercise, mindset, personal development, and executing life with conscious intention. If your goal is to look, feel, and be strong and experience transformation from the inside out, you, my friend, are in the right place. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's jump into today's episode. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, and this is a special bonus episode. Bonus. Bonus episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. You guys were so excited about my episode last week with my husband, Dr. Taylor Brzezicki, that we decided to come back and answer all the questions in the DMs that I've been getting about pelvic floor prolapse. All right. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) So we're excited to be back with a bonus episode just to answer your guys' questions about um, pelvic floor and pelvic floor prolapse. And is there anything you want to say, honey, before we start? No, it's just exciting to see um, so many people talking about this. You know, we kind of talked last time about how important it was to um, talk about these issues and try to minimize their stigma. So it's exciting to see so many people being willing to share their questions so that we can talk about it. Absolutely. And we want to really um, emphasize that while TJ is a doctor, he is not your doctor. And so um, some of these questions we're going to kind of try to generalize a little bit for like a general population. Um, We want to stay away from giving like specific medical advice. Yeah. How do do those disclaimers always go? This is for your like infotainment version (laughs) (laughs) only or something. Right. Entertainment only. (laughs) Yeah. So... You need to see a doctor that is focused on you if you really have questions. But we will try to give some like general ideas for people who are listening um, because there were a lot of questions. Like as soon as this aired, I was shocked at the number of people who messaged me and were like, that was great. And I want to know more. <laughs> and I want to like know about my specific circumstance. So that's what we're going to try to do today. You ready? Yep. Okay, let's do it. So let's start with um, Pam. She was curious about bowel issues that are associated with pelvic floor weakness. And we didn't really talk a whole lot about bowel issues, but um, that's definitely something that happens with women and, and something that you deal with. So this, Pam actually had a rectocele repaired six months ago and she feel like it might be reoccurring. So can you kind of tell us what the heck is a rectocele and some ideas yeah. about so, bowel issues? So i answer your question specifically. When we look at prolapses, we break them down into... Um, the top part of the vagina, which has a bladder on it, so like a bladder prolapse, or the back part of the vagina, which is next to the rectum. So some people would call that like the rectum prolapsing into the vagina or a rectocele more accurately. And then you can have the uterus fall down. So it's those three compartments. So the bladder side, the rectum side, or the, or the uterine side of the, of the vagina. So a rectocele is when that back wall um, pouches down into the vagina. Um, and so it can recur. Um, and particularly when it comes to bowel issues, there's some association there. Um, more commonly where you see rectocele show up is in people that have constipation um, and where they're straining and pushing really hard and that seems to push on the back wall of the vagina and make the prolapse show up there. Um, when I see pelvic floor weakness, I think that maybe she's talking about having trouble holding onto bowels. So this would be like bowel leakage. 
Um, and pelvic floor muscle strengthening can help with that. Um, but really what we do primarily is try to actually constipate people if um, the stool is firm or hard. It's much less likely to leak out. Um, and so starting with fiber supplementation is a really um, good thing to do there. Um, and that's kind of what I think about that. Awesome. Okay. Jessica asked, is it harmful to practice Kegels or to hold your pee when you have a really full, full bladder? I actually had this question too, because I've heard that before that like you shouldn't hold your pee. Yeah, I think that's a, a myth. <laughs> if okay. that was true, like every nurse, doctor, teacher, <laughs> airplane pilot, stewardess, uh, I don't know, pick, you know, the list goes on firefighter would have like the world's worst bladder. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're, you know, that's not really true. So um, it's not harmful to hold your pee any longer than you need to. I mean, it's certainly going to be uncomfortable, um, but I don't think it has a long-term effect. Okay. And then she also asked, can there be issues from having muscles that are too strong? Because you had said in our last um, episode of something about women going too far the opposite way when like building muscle. Yeah. No, I don't, I mean, not really, in my opinion. Like, I think that you can make the muscles as strong as you can get them. Um, the problem comes is when they go into spasm um, or they're already too tight and then you're trying to do more Kegels on top of those. And so those are situations that are usually related to pain. Um, and so if you're in pain, doing Kegels is probably not the solution. Gotcha. Okay. Whitney asked, what are some warning signs of pelvic floor damage when you're pregnant? So she's wondering, how do you distinguish between just like, you know, normal pelvic pain while pregnant and then actual warning signs of actual like pelvic floor damage? Yeah, that's, that's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, pains in pregnancy are certainly common. Um, round ligament pain is not uncommon at all in the third trimester. Um, all the discomfort that comes with having a baby and all that weight on the pelvic floor is, is common. Um, and so I don't know that I have a good answer for that, honestly. Um, I think, um, if it's severe or particularly bothersome to you, it's really worth asking your doctor and just getting checked out. Um, but, um, to be honest, most of us are going to be pretty conservative during pregnancy with our therapies anyway and our recommendations. Um, and a lot of times we usually just wait and see how things go until after the delivery. Um, but always worth getting checked out if, if you're not sure. Great. Okay. Camry said that her cervix can push out while bearing down and she has an anterior wall prolapse so that her bladder sits really low. And then she also has a rectocele and she says the bulge bothers her and she is seeing a physiotherapist and she is getting fitted for a, a pessary. But her question is, is like how, what's that line for when it's now, it's now important to get it surgically fixed or when like that would push you over the edge of, okay, now it's time that we want to get this surgically fixed. She's wondering if it's going to get worse. Um, and how, you know, that process of, of, of going from therapy to surgery and what the line is. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to back up to answer the terminology one more time. I kind of hit on it earlier, but here she uses a different term. She calls it anterior wall prolapse. Some people call that a cystocele. Um, it's the same thing, just in case anybody's not familiar with those terms. A posterior wall prolapse is the same thing as a rectocele. Um, and then we don't really have a term for uterine prolapse other than uterine or apical prolapse, I guess, is the, is the technical term. Um, so just to go back to the terminology. Um, and so she says, if the bulge in the low cervix doesn't get higher, is it a personal choice to get surgically fixed? Yes, absolutely. So prolapse in general, and these specifically in these other pelvic floor conditions in general, should be fixed when they bother you enough that you want to do something about it, right? So if this is impacting your quality of life, impairing your ability to exercise, causing intercourse problems, or whatever other issues you might be having, that's when it's time to go and get it fixed. Um, 
So her follow-up question was, um, if she doesn't, will it get worse? And I love this question because I think it gives you, it's so important to understand a little bit of the natural history of prolapse. Um, when they do these large studies and follow women over time, if you take 100 women with a prolapse, and we stage prolapse from, let's just say, zero to four. Zero is no prolapse, four is com complete prolapse. Most women present with symptoms when they're about stage two. And if you take 100 women with stage two prolapse and watch them over the course of a year, a small percentage will get worse, about the same percentage gets better, and the vast majority, 80 plus percent, stays exactly the same. Um, and so you can offer, so people can have a lot of reassurance that if they have a prolapse today, that it's not going to suddenly get horrendously worse and become a big problem tomorrow because they didn't deal with it today. Um, I don't believe in prophylactic surgery, like trying to do surgery today to hopefully prevent a problem that might not happen tomorrow. Um, and so I tell people, you know, come and see me when it's bothersome to you, and that's when we'll do something about it. Um, and then... Uh, so wait, hold on. Is that yeah. line a personal preference? Is Absolutely. that like, this is bothersome to me, which may not be a bothersome to somebody else, but it's bothersome to me, and so that yes. warrants surgery. That's exactly right. Yep. Um, and then the follow-up question was, how long can you use a pessary? Um, and that is also a personal choice. You can use it for your entire life if you want to. Um, and we don't think it affects your prolapse directly other than improving your symptoms. Um, it's not going to stretch everything out or somehow cause a problem. Pessaries just need to be maintenance. They need to be cleaned and, and removed and cleaned every now and again, at least once every three months, if not more often. Um, and uh, as long as you do that, you can continue to use a pessary for as long as you would like to. Okay, great. All right, so um, Melissa asks about having like mini pee accidents, like when she's doing, you know, activities of jumping and things like that. Um, and she said her mother has prolapse and she's wondering if there's any tips to prevent this, like these peeing episodes from happening. Yeah. So this goes back to what we were talking about in the other episode about, you know, treatment options for stress incontinence, right? So, um, certainly starting with Kegels and doing those kind of exercises is helpful. Uh, I don't think we talked about this last time, but weight loss in general is actually very helpful for stress incontinence symptoms. There's a big research study out there called the PRIDE trial. Acron All of these trials have acronyms. I don't actually remember what PRIDE stands for, but it's an acronym. Um, and uh, they took a number of women um, who had a BMI over 30 and uh, randomized them to this structured weight loss program versus just kind of like general education or if you should go lose weight. And uh, then they followed them out with their outcomes to see who, um, uh, who had to change in their urinary symptoms. And the people that were in the weight loss group, no surprise, lost weight and had a 50% reduction in their symptoms with an 8% reduction in body weight, which in this group was like 10 to 15 pounds. Um, huh, so just, yeah, say it again. Like the people that lost 10 to 15 pounds, which was again about 8% of their body weight, had a 50% improvement in their symptoms. Wow. Um, so we don't have very many therapies in medicine in general that are quite that effective um, without having any you know, significant risk factors and in fact actually make you better in all of your other aspects of life. Um, so losing weight um, in general is uh, losing fat, I should say, to be more specific ah, for our very audience. Very good, very good, very good, sir. <laughs> um, is uh, definitely beneficial for that. Um, and then all those other tips and tricks that we talked about last time in terms of pessaries and continence pes uh, tampons and uh, surgical Kegels. procedures and Kegels and everything else, yeah. Okay, awesome. All right, Mary Ann says that she gets an uncontrollable urgent need to empty her bowels while she's running. Um, like to the point where if she doesn't stop, she can't hold it. And it's very loose and watery. And she said it lasts for hours sometimes after a race. And sometimes there's blood in her stool. 
So again, not any person's physician here, but there's a red flag um, statement here that there's blood in the stool. If you have blood in your stool or blood in your urine or blood coming from the vagina or that general area after you've gone through menopause, you really need to go and see a doctor. Um, this is a red flag symptom. We need to rule out you know, all the bad things that usually it's not. But um, this is one of those things that really needs to be checked out. And people that have blood in the stool will often have urgency with their bowel issues because the blood is irritating to the colon. Huh. Um, okay. And it's going to make you want to empty. The body is trying to get rid of that. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So okay. um, in general, if the blood story wasn't here and it was just loose and watery stools, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff, uh, I would be working on trying to find ways to constipate things, you know, adding more fiber. Um, you can take Imodium or, uh, or Lamotil, I think, are both available over the counter. Um, and you can change your diet as you're getting closer to a race or some kind of an event um, to try to try to find things that will sit better in your, in your belly. Okay. Jenny says she uses a pessary and sees a, a PT, and she has prolapse. It isn't, isn't like severe prolapse, but it isn't mild prolapse. It's kind of in the middle. And she she's rethinking surgery. So I think she's kind of like what you were talking about where she's at this point where it's uncomfortable to her and she's rethinking, okay, well, maybe I want to have surgery. And so she wants to know what risks there are and if she gets it done, what is her pelvic floor going to look like in 20 to 30 years? Yeah, so this is always an important question, right? So anytime we do prolapse surgery, we just can't get around this whole gravity thing. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you've ever seen somebody that's had a facelift and like it looks really tight and high for a couple of years and then kind of starts to fall and sag back down, um, the prolapse surgeries are, are not that dissimilar. Um, so, you know, before it sounds like I'm putting down my field, um, <laughs> <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that uh, if you have surgery today, there's a chance that it will come back again in the future. When they look at big research studies and to try to answer the question of how likely that is to come back, it's really kind of hard to generalize because there's so many different types of procedures with people who have so many different stages of prolapse. But in general, um, for our kind of like uh, gold standard procedure for apical prolapse, that's what we call a sacrocopal pexy. So the research uh, would quote an 80% success rate over five years. And just because that's... Um, too simplistic, then you have to start to get into discussions about, well, how do you define success? If you look at the number of people that actually have surgery again because they're so bothered by the recurrence that they want to fix it, that number is only like 2% over five years. Um, and so it, it kind of depends a little bit on your definition of success. But in general, most people are very happy with their prolapse surgeries. Very few people seek additional treatments afterwards. Um, but it is important to understand and recognize that there's a chance that 20 or 30 years from now you might you might have it come back, which is, again, part of my rationale for not doing a surgery to try to prevent something that you know, may not happen that we talked about earlier. Awesome. Okay, last question. So this Emma is a woman, and she has some very specific symptoms, um, and she has been frustrated because she hasn't been able to figure out what is causing the symptoms. They're kind of like a UTI, but she keeps testing negative for a UTI. And so she's wondering about painful bladder syndrome, and then also, you know, what are options when you can't get an answer for, for something with your OBGYN care? Yeah, so this is an important thing to think about is um, this diagnosis of painful bladder syndrome, which has historically been called interstitial cystitis. Both terms are used. Um, and what this is, is it's a pain syndrome, right? So pain syndromes afflict people all throughout the body. 
and you all know somebody who has chronic migraines or somebody that has chest pain or somebody that has abdominal pain that comes and goes. Um, some people have pain in the bladder, and so we call this a painful bladder syndrome. And as best as I understand it, and it's been explained to me through you know my research and reading and things, these syndromes are probably similar and interrelated and just affect one person in the bladder because that happens to be their weak spot versus somebody else where it affects them in their belly or their chest or whatever else. Um, and pain syndromes are challenging. There's no doubt about it. Um, the key point, I think, for the audience is that many people that have what they think are recurrent urinary tract infections are... Um, uh, may actually not be bacterial in nature. Their, their symptoms may not be bacterial in nature, right? So if you have a painful bladder syndrome or an interstitial cystitis and you go and get a urine culture and it comes back negative, even though it feels like a UTI because it hurts when you pee and it burns and you have to pee all the time and all that stuff, it's not actually a bacteria that's causing those symptoms. Um, and so it's, it's really challenging sometimes as a clinician to try to convince people that there is more than one thing in life that causes burning and urinary frequency and, and all of those types of symptoms that oftentimes get labeled as a UTI. Um, so, you know, it's important to make that distinction um, and really need to see your doctor to, to try to tease that out because it's not a clear-cut uh, line in the sand where you say, oh, yeah, if you meet criteria A, B, and C, it's just a UTI. If you meet criteria C, D, and F, then it's a painful bladder syndrome. It's, it's a challenging thing to tease out. But the key, I think, for educational purposes is to be aware of the diagnosis and recognize that um, painful bladder syndrome is a real thing um, and that there are treatments, there are options um, available uh, for it. Um, and that many people with it have other you know, pain-related issues, pain with intercourse or heavy periods that are painful. I should say pain, periods that are painful whether they're heavy or not. Um, and I think her follow-up question was, what do you do when you get frustrated with your physician that's providing care to you? Well, um, you know, I think in those situations, uh, if you are getting to the point where you're not confident in the therapeutic relationship you have with somebody, the best thing is to explore and look around, ask for a second opinion. Um, you know, good doctor is never going to be afraid of, of a second opinion. More often than not, if, if, they're, if you're feeling frustrated, they're probably feeling challenged too. Um, and uh, having a, another pair of eyes or ears to listen to what's going on can be really, really helpful for, for everybody involved. So... I think second opinion is always a good idea. And is this where, um, like, specialized training can come in as well with your specialist versus your generalist? Yeah, for sure, right? You know, if you've been seeing an OBGYN and he just he or she just doesn't seem to know much about what's going on, seeing a specialist might, might be the way to go. And you could go see a urogynecologist. You could go find somebody that specializes in interstitial cystitis. Um, there are people out there that this is what they do every day and all day. And so they obviously have a broader... De uh, scope of understanding and a de deeper fund of knowledge about how to treat and evaluate that condition. Um, and so you can um, search around. You might even ask your doctor if they know one that's an interstitial cystitis expert. Um, but you can certainly go to the internet and, and Google interstitial cystitis expert and you'll find somebody that hopefully isn't too far away from you. Awesome. You're the best. Thanks for coming on the podcast again. Yay, that was fun. <laughs> if you guys liked it, let me know. Hopefully this was educational and helpful to be able to have Dr. Brzezicki share his... That's really weird to call you Dr. Brzezicki, but have, <laughs> Sounds good. I like it. have DJ show you or tell us all about uh, pelvic floor prolapse and all that good stuff that we don't talk nearly enough about, I think, as women and um, in our society. So thanks, honey. You bet. 
And that wraps up this episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm Amber. Now go out and be strong because remember, my friend, you can do anything. Hold up, sister friend. Do you love Biceps After Babies Radio? If so, the best way to say thank you is to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. I know every podcaster wants you to leave a review, but it's because those reviews help the podcast to reach more people. And I do truly want to know what you think. If this particular episode resonated with you, will you also please share it? Either send the link to someone who would find it valuable or take a screenshot and post it to your social media and tell your friends and family why they should listen. Make sure you tag me at biceps.after.babies so I can hear your feedback and give you a little love. And you know, if you aren't already following me on Instagram or Facebook, that's the perfect time to hit that follow button. Thank you for being here and listening to Biceps After Babies Radio.